Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. Today, we are continuing with episode number four of our Esoteric Patriotism series, and we're going to continue reading Stefan Heller's wonderful book, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society, and we continue today with chapter two. So sit back, relax, grab your copy of the book if you've hopefully already ordered one, and follow us as we seek the mysteries. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. It is Wednesday, February 24th, 2021, and I'm your host, Brian Stanford, coming to you from beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, where today we just heard that some of the local COVID restrictions are lightening. Things are opening up slowly again, which is a a great thing to hear. Adjust the camera a little bit. Sounds like the numbers are going down across the country, which is a wonderful thing. I hope you and your family and friends and everyone where you are are doing well. We're going to continue today with part four of our Esoteric Patriotism series, where we're reading from the fabulous book by Stefan Heller, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. In the last episode, we got through chapter one, and we're moving on now to chapter two. And if you've watched these before, we're going to read the chapter together. I'll stop, make some commentary here or there. Um, I highly recommend you buy this book. It's not very expensive. You can find it at a used bookstore, local bookstore, um, wherever you buy books, uh, get it. This is, a, this is a, a really powerful book to read, especially during these times and the times we're in. I don't think it's much an, of an exaggeration to say that for people who are interested in the esoteric ideas of freedom and liberty, um, this is one of the most important books that you can read. And so today we're going to carry on with chapter two, which is called Old Time Religion in Modern Society. Drinking some wonderful licorice root tea. This has really been the winter of tea for me. I've never been much of a tea fan or a tea drinker. I'm really getting into um, both black teas, green teas, red teas, and herbal teas. I really love these herbal teas in the afternoon, and a licorice root one is amazing. So let's jump right in with chapter two, old-time religion in modern society. Time and again in history, we find crusades afoot, which act on the assumption that the public life of the culture has moved too far away from the moral precepts to which a number of citizens pay allegiance. In our days, we are once again confronted with such crusades, reinforced by the contemporary means of mass persuasion, the public media. Vocal minorities of several kinds seem bent upon exerting pressure on the political sector of the country. Among these are groups who professed motivations are religious and whose program involves making the general citizenry conform to the moral idea which these groups consider to be correct in light of their own religious convictions. From the depth psychological point of view, it seems that we are faced here with more than a mundane issue of contemporary public life. Rather, the activities of these minorities present a psychological and, in fact, a spiritual problem which merits our our deepest concern. This chapter considers this set of temporal public phenomena within a larger spiritual context, which involves not only the immediate psychological overtones of the present, but which leads us as well to the contemplation of a much larger psycho-historical context. 
First, we must address the relationship of religion to the body politic or to social and political concerns in general. Religion may be defined as the effort of the individual human psyche to link itself up with its greater psychic background, to connect itself with spiritual and archetypal realities within its own deeper mind, indeed within the deeper mind of humanity, and thereby to facilitate a state of wholeness or totality arising within the psyche itself. This definition calls to mind the origins of the word religion. It comes from the Latin terms re, meaning back or together, and ligre, meaning to join. Religion comes from the same root as ligament, which in biology is designed to join things together. Thus, by definition, religion has to do with joining the individual soul to its background within a greater reality. We might also say, I think, in a historical perspective, that for better or for worse, religion has always played an enormously important role in human society. For this reason, a historical or rather psychohistorical survey of the development of human consciousness can be very helpful here. Within such a survey, we can discover the authentic character, the roots, and the nature of our present situation. For the purpose of this analysis, I shall employ a scheme of development derived from the Jungian writer Eric Neumann, expressed in his works The Origin, of History, the Origin and History of Consciousness and The Great Mother. Neumann's developmental scheme is useful in this instance primarily because it helps us uncover the relationship between religion and the political life of societies. Phases of the growth of psyche and society. According to Neumann, certain phases denote the development of consciousness, or more properly, the growth of consciousness. The first phase or stage has been linked symbolically with the figure of the Ouroboros serpent, or dragon, a tail-swallowing amphibian. This symbol represents the condition of original totality and self-containment, which exists before the birth of consciousness or of the conscious ego. While development is in this phase, the ego exists only as a latent potentiality and is still identical with the totality of the objective psyche. Conscious and unconscious, ego and self, masculine and feminine are still one in this condition. In the individual, this state is presumed to exist during the prenatal period and in early infancy. Now let us look at this phase for our purposes in political religious terms. The equivalent of the primordial archaic unconscious of the embryo or of the very small infant would be primitive society. In primitive society, the individual and the collective are still one. The tribe, clan, or extended family is both religious and secular in character. Chiefs and kings are often divine, or at least rule by divine right. All of life is religious or sacred in nature. The religious and the secular are not only unified, but not even the faintest concept exists that the two could be envisioned as different. All human acts, drinking, eating, sex, hunting, fighting, are sacred acts. Nothing is profane or mundane. Everything is charged with great archetypal import and force. In such a society, the gods live through the human being. Their communion with the human is so close and intimate. To speak of individual freedom under these circumstances is nonsensical because there is no individual to be free. Archaic society is the individual's real self. Society and self are one, 
and without society, the individual perishes, just like an amputated limb dies when removed from the vitalizing system of the organism. Much of this description pertains also to slightly more developed forms of primitive society. A good illustration of this phase of society can be found in the ideas of the great humanitarian Dr. Albert Schweitzer. He thought that modern hospital conditions were potentially alienating and psychologically harmful to the African natives to whom he extended his medical menstruations. Instead of isolating the sick patient and putting him or her into a hospital bed in a room alone or with strangers, Schweitzer allowed patients to move into his hospital with their families and their pets and domestic animals, including dogs, chickens, pigs, and the like. Needless to say, this arrangement did not enhance the hygienic conditions and the orderliness of the hospital, but it provided the African the kind of psychological support system without which he or she could not have improved physically and would assuredly have perished for psychological reasons. Schweitzer knew that a member of an undifferentiated society cannot survive psychologically outside the bosom of that society. The reality of personhood, with its consequent sense of autonomy and self-sufficiency is simply not present in archaic societies. Lest we become prideful and inflated when comparing ourselves to members of such societies, we must remember that in spite of our modern civilized alienation, we are still very much partakers of conditions which at a subtle level resemble those of the primitive. Psychological support systems of a collective nature are still desirable although we are no longer dependent on them to such an enormous degree as we once were. The cardinal features of the primitive society we are describing is lack of differentiation. Just as the individual is not differentiated from the collective, the secular is not differentiated from the religious. The two are still one. While it is easy for us to infer the shortcomings of such a condition, we must not forget that the unification of these powerful forces also gives the people within such a society considerable psychological power or psychic energy. What it does not give them, however, is individual consciousness, since it is a pre-egoic phase of the development. Although this phase is archaic, there are, in fact, many societies in the present world where this condition still prevails. Moreover, we need to remember that we moderns still carry within us the ancient memory of this condition. Consequently, we are not entirely removed from it ourselves. We hanker for it, as it were, on an unconscious level, even as we have an unconscious desire to return, not perhaps to the physical womb of our mothers, as some reductionist psychologists claim, but rather to the womb of the unconscious. Somehow, in the background of all human thinking and feeling is the recognition that there was a time, maybe even a time before time, when we were one, when the sacred and the secular were not separate, when every meal was a holy communion, when every act of life was a sacred ritual, when we dealt within the all-enfolding, all-nourishing, and all-sustaining energy system of a great totality, a great ineffable wholeness, and experienced a wonderful feeling of energy, wholeness, protectedness, and oneness. The farther we move away from that ancient condition, the greater the longing, the nostalgia, to return to a state of that sort. The childhood of consciousness. The next phase to consider is the infancy and childhood of consciousness. Within this epoch, consciousness is born, but like most newborn beings, it is very weak. 
Consciousness at this stage is dim, fitful, sporadic in its expression. An analogy that offers itself is that of a tiny flickering flame in a large dark space that is easily reduced to an imperceptible speck of light or even extinguished by a gust of air. The light of newborn consciousness is rather as if one were to take a little oil lamp out into a wind-swept and foggy heath where the gusts may make it appear as if the little flame has been completely put out until, after the wind subsides, its flame comes up again. At the level of the growth of individual consciousness, this stage is usually equated with childhood. Human infants and children, unlike most animals, are helpless for a long time. Young children are dependent on the caring menstruations of their mothers in particular. Without mothers, children would perish. This is true psychologically as well as physically. In psychological terms, we might say that the unconscious, which is the psychic mother, remains in close touch with the child, nourishes it, supports it, and influences it. Therefore, children are very close to their unconscious, much closer than adults. For this reason, children are in very close touch with their dreams. They also have a sense of reality about their fantasies that adults do not have. By way of their unconscious, it is in its collective aspect, children are also in some kind of telepathic communication with the unconscious of their parents and appear to partake of it at times. That is why Jung has pointed out that parents ought to realize that not only their conscious and overt acts, but also their unconscious can influence their children. So let us say parents may discipline themselves not to argue or show hostility or outbursts of temper in front of their children. But if they have a lot of hostility or anger or disturbance within their psyches, and if they are around their children, the children are likely to be affected by even unexpressed anger. It is not necessary to perform dramatic, overt acts in front of a child in order for the child to get the point. Children are in such close contact with the great mother unconscious that the unconscious of their physical parents is accessible to them. As we look at this phase of development in social, political, and religious terms, we find that in this stage, society, religion, and politics, like the ego and the self, are beginning to separate, but only barely. No secular society of any kind exists as yet. Priesthood at this point, frequently a feminine priesthood, is supreme. The gods are no longer identified with the priest king as they were before, although some divine kingship may still persist. Priesthood, however, is still the principal social office of a mediatorship between gods and humans, and as such is very important. The devouring aspect of the divine is considered to be very present and threatening, and the priesthood is as much engaged in deflecting divine wrath as it is in securing the gifts, the gifts of and celebrating divine love. One is reminded in this context of the ancient Aztec civilizations of Mexico, where the coming of solar eclipses and other unusual astronomical or natural phenomena were accompanied by human sacrifices. Analogous conditions existed in other civilizations. So in this phase of society, the consciousness of the cosmos and of universal being is seen as a threatening power, not only as a benevolent one. This duality is really the recognition, one might say, at a projected level of the ambivalence, the coexisting good and evil nature of the psyche. The universe, like the psyche, is not all good, not all bad, but both and both qualities can come forth and manifest. 
Thus, the unconscious must be supplicated and appeased to nourish and support us, and its destructive and devouring aspect must be kept from harming us. Such supplication is an important aspect of this phase of religiosity, for it is, of course, religion that addresses itself to societal protection. Occasionally, of course, some advanced egos are born into this phase of society. They may try to challenge the vitally powerful, but at the same time dark and oppressive supremacy of the unconscious. But these individuals usually do not last because they are out of harmony with the unconscious of the majority of the people. The unconscious devours them, a pattern which persists for a very long time. Historically, we find that all cultures go through a similar phase and that even today, many cultures are still heavily involved in this phenomena. Time and again, the collective lack of consciousness devours the heroic consciousness that rises to challenge it. Socrates drank hemlock because he was an ego that had outgrown the collective, and therefore the political leaders, exponents of the collectivity, came to him and said, you, Socrates, are teaching doctrines which amount to the corruption, the moral corruption of the young of Athens. These leaders had no television or other modern media with which to attack Socrates as they would today, but they were quite effective in carrying out their purpose nevertheless. And think about things you see now, because indeed, there are people being forced to drink hemlock uh, for leading the collective unconscious astray. It's something important to pay attention to. In contrast to Socrates, the Hebrew prophets, with some exceptions, of course, appear to have been agents of the great unconscious tyranny embodied in their god. The barely emancipated, rebellious egos of various kings, cities, and people were beaten into submission by the Jehovah archetype, by the exhortations of its prophetic agents. It is difficult and often impossible for a heroic individual consciousness to succeed against the unconscious collectivity, especially in the developmental phase of culture we are describing. For example, the medieval emperors who rose against the popes never really succeeded. Why? Because the popes spoke for the unconscious collectivity, and the people were under the sway of the unconscious. The Hohenstaufen emperors, especially the cultured and enlightened Frederick II, tried to combat the power of the papacy and of the church, but they eventually ended up doing what came to be known as, quote, going to Canossa, unquote, to kiss the foot of the pope again. In this manner, the rebellious ego tries to rise against the unconscious, but cannot succeed. It then goes back, makes up, and bows to the unconscious once more. How often one sees this in one's childhood and early adolescence. How dearly we all would have liked to tell our parents to go to the deepest Dantean circle of hell so that we could be sovereign and autonomous. But at this stage of development, we were still lacking in power, and thus we could not do it. So perhaps we told them off with great drama and bluster and kicked up a good fuss, perhaps even ran away. But in the end, we came back and made up. After all, we still needed our meals. We still needed a bed to sleep in, and so we crawled back into the restrictive but still protective nest. The political analogies to this phase of development in many parts of the world are just as dramatic. Look at the recent and current situation in Iran. This archaic backward country was taken over after World War I by a military officer who became Shah Reza I of the House of Pahlavi. He tried like a good heroic ego to do away 
with at least the worst manifestations of the dark unconscious. He tried to secularize the country by taking away the power of the mullahs and establishing a government independent of the domination of archaic unconscious religious structures. His son, Shah Muhammad Reza, continued the task of civilizing, urbanizing, and educating. Yet the backlash of the dark, catonic archetypes of the unconscious could not be avoided. Out of his repressed exile in France came the black-clad, black-turbaned, black-souled Ayatollah Khomeini, like an avenging angel of the unconscious, a dark archetype risen from the pit. We all know what happened. The dark unconscious took over and established mullah rule, theocracy. It turned Iranian history back to the dark Middle Ages. In other places, notably in Turkey, a similar development occurred, but without an effective backlash. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, affectionately called Kemal the Drunkard for his alcoholic defiance of the law of the prophet, took over and secularized the country. He outlawed the fez worn by men and tore the veil off women. He told the clergy to be quiet, to keep quiet or else. Turkey is still not a paragon of modern civilization and culture, but it is not a theocratic dictatorship like Iran, although this has changed to a large degree. In many countries, this phase of the great unconscious mother, mother unconscious, still predominates and keeps the freedom of the ego at a non-existent or at least a minimal level. Examples are numerous, not only the Islamic countries, but interestingly and paradoxically enough, the Marxist countries, where the materialistic religion known as Marxism-Leninism has taken over the role of the church, illustrate this phase. Many people don't recognize this fact. Religion, particularly unconscious, chthonic, archaic, old-time religion, comes in many forms and guises. Even an atheistic religion like communism is still a religion in the sense that it takes over and demands total allegiance from the individual, just like the unconscious does. The Marxist-Leninist religion has its rituals, dogmas, and commandments. The party is the church. Its functionaries are the clergy. What the medieval church was in Europe, the Communist Party was in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries, and remains so in countries such as Vietnam, Cuba, and China. The party chairman is the Pope. He is the superior of presidents, premiers, and the like, just as the Pope was the supreme overseer of emperors, kings, and princes. And of course, such countries have a most efficient inquisition. During the last World War, I had the opportunity of observing the political commissars of the Red Army in action. It was an awesome experience. One could see staff officers of the rank of colonel shiver in their boots before the commissars and their political police. One may imagine similar scenes during the era of the Inquisition, when knights and generals trembled before the cruel Dominican monks. Look around the world and observe where there is the least personal freedom you will certainly single out the Islamic theocracies and the communist states. Why? Because they are both dominated by religion. In one case, a theocratic ideology that has not progressed since the sixth century, and the other by an atheistic religion following the prophets Marx and Lenin, or for that matter, Mao. All these ideological tyrannies are in reality representatives of great mother unconscious. Interestingly enough, these countries are always welfare states as well as tyrannies. The tyrannical welfare state is, in fact, the best symbol of the great mother unconscious. If you are a good kid, I will take care of you, says the great mother embodied in the state, 
I will feed you, I will house you, I will give you work. If you don't toe the line, I will punish you, even devour you. I will put you into a concentration camp, into the gulag. I will sacrifice you because after all, you are my child, and that means that you are part of me. You cannot ever be an individual apart from me. Thus speaks the great mother unconscious in her form as the tyrannical welfare state. In speaking so, she sounds just like a real, undeveloped, unconscious mother of whom there are many. Such mothers never want to grant their children sovereignty or real individuality, but continue instead to regard their children as extensions of themselves, even when they are old and gray. In the same manner, the totalitarian state always suppresses the individuality of its children. The motto of the totalitarian state is, I am mother and mother knows best. To this you may add, and mother will get you if you are not good as she decrees. By painting this picture of the unconscious, I don't mean to imply that this vital portion of the psyche is exclusively or even primarily negative in its relationship to the conscious ego. Assuredly, the unconscious is the source of creativity, inspiration, and psychic energy. Because of this, the ego is in great need of adequate avenues of access to the unconscious. By the same token, we need to be aware that our unconscious selfhood, including the collective unconscious or objective psyche, is characterized by ambivalence towards the conscious ego. Mother unconscious, as we called it, is devouring as well as nourishing, obscuring as well as illuminating, because it contains all polarities and can manifest them as it chooses. The tyrannical welfare state, as a metaphor for a particular aspect of the unconscious, needs to be understood within such a wider context. It's my contention that we are seeing, we're living through at the moment, a rise in this um, return to the great mother archetype, to the tyrannical welfare state mother archetype. Um, I think we're seeing it a lot in this desire for empathy and emotion from politicians. And with this um, seems to be growing um, modern conception that the role of the state should be to care for the need and well-being of the citizens as opposed to um, perhaps a more rugged understanding of the state that we've had in the past, that the, what the state is there to do is to set up guarantees of your freedom to succeed as well as your freedom to fail. Uh, the tyrannical mother gives you no freedom to fail. Um, not a big Pink Floyd fan, uh, but there's that old song, I think it might be called Mother. The line says, mother's gonna keep you right here under her wing. She won't let you fly, but she might make you sink, right? Um, this is the tyrannical mother. And I, I think that we are, we are in a real danger of sliding into, in fact, I think we're already on the slide into this kind of psychic tyranny. The patriarchal period. The third phase of the growth and development of the individual psyche and of culture is what Eric Neumann refers to as the patriarchal period or the phase of the great father or the spiritual father. In the psychic life of the individual, this phase concerns the rising of the power of the ego and the consequent ascendancy of the conscious ego over its opposite number, the unconscious. 
At this point, the unconscious is increasingly rejected and depreciated. The rational ego creates its own goals and disciplines, which inevitably strive for personal independence, will, and sovereignty. The political implications of this phase, I think, are most interesting because they have a deep and direct bearing upon our own civilization, culture, and systems of government. Now, we must remember that in the main, religion is the representative of the greater unconscious background in every culture. Thus, it is understandable that the first element or force with which the newly sovereign ego is likely to clash is religion in whatever form it may exist in a particular society. In order to emancipate itself from the thraldom of the unconscious and its archetypes, the ego establishes, works for, or tries to establish a secular political structure which is emancipated from the establishments of religion. The kings of the absolutist era refused to bow to the pope and ruled their kingdoms without deferring to ecclesiastical power. The preference of absolutist monarchs for Protestantism as a form of religion as manifested in Germany and England can be traced back to this psycho-historical element. Some reliance on religious symbol and moral precepts remained, but the crucial difference was that the state was regarded as a legitimate power in its own right, which did not have to rely on the grace and approval of the religious power. In this phase, the state no longer derives its authority and justification from a supernatural, transcendental religious mythos of some kind. The Renaissance period in Europe and subsequently the Reformation, which freed secular rulers from ecclesiastical dominion and control, were the real beginnings of the development of Western society. These developments were succeeded by the era of the Enlightenment and finally by the turbulent era of the French Revolution, during which the idea of popular sovereignty and individualism was advocated, although perhaps not implemented all that successfully. This brings us to the situation in the United States. The American colonies which separated themselves from the British mother country were the offsprings par excellence of the era of the Enlightenment. The U.S. Constitution asserted the de-establishment of religion, or, as it is popularly described, the separation of church and state. The state vowed to be and to remain free and above religious disputes and principles while allowing complete freedom of religion to its citizens. These principles led in America to a flowering of religious movements and sects perhaps unprecedented in history. The dire predictions of older religious establishments, such as the Roman Catholic Church, to the effect that a secular state would lead to the death of religion and to moral degradation were not fulfilled. On the contrary, America became a very religious country in which religion flourished, but in a new way. The new way of religion in America was an individual way, a way of highly pluralistic personal religiosity. We may say that religious life in America came to combine the highly individualistic attitudes of the ego with the search for the values of the unconscious as represented by religion itself. The devouring, repressive aspects of mother unconscious manifesting as mother church were greatly mitigated against by the state, which guaranteed the possibility of religious freedom and, to the best of its ability, guarded this freedom for its citizens. Probably not since Hellenistic Rome and Alexandria has there been such a combination of individualism and religion as has been seen throughout the history of the United States. For 1,500 years or more, such a phenomena was not seen in Western society. 
while religious plurality no doubt has its shortcomings, its advantages were and are, I think, enormous. In fact, they are so great that they cannot be exaggerated. The integrative phase. The essentially individualistic and libertarian religious life of the people of the United States has an important potential relationship to the fourth phase of the growth and development of the psyche, which, which Eric Neumann called the integrative phase. Neumann's theory declares that the father-oriented, ego-dominated, patriarchal phase leaves the individual one-sided and incomplete. Important psychic elements, which may have feminine overtones, have been repressed and neglected. Consciousness and ego have been overvalued, and the non-rational, unconscious side of life has been depreciated. Individuality and personality have been exalted at the, at the expense of the feeling-toned values of relatedness, emotion, and community. Having wandered far and long from the unconscious homeland, the ego in this phase feels like a motherless child. So another change or transition to an integrative phase is needed to redeem these neglected psychic elements. How does this transition manifest at the political level? Beginning in the 1930s or 40s, the public philosophy, philosophy of the United States increasingly began to move away from the individualism of the era of the Enlightenment and, and of the Industrial Revolution. We may regard this movement away from rugged individualism as an indication of the beginning of the integrative phase in the psychohistory of this country. At the same time, one is bound to admit that these stirrings of the integrative phase remained in the main rather confusing and confused. While an increasing number of cultured and well-meaning persons were beginning to see the need to recover the neglected psychic elements of the culture, the ways in which they went about this task produced many counterproductive results. The growth of the welfare state brought with it the rise of an inefficient and soulless bureaucracy and a clumsy and exceedingly costly apparatus of administrative government organs, which became a veritable millstone around the neck of American society. Many people became childishly dependent on the ministrations of the welfare state and regressed into mass mindedness and unconsciousness. The educational methods and systems broke down bringing widespread custodial care of young persons to whom not even the most essential elements of education were offered. The educational process became largely a mockery and a sham. The fanciest and most expensive public school systems in the world turned out vast numbers of functional illiterates and still continue to do so. Once again, the analogy between the psychological development of the individual and the culture holds true. When the pressure within the field of the ego mounts towards the need to integrate unconscious contents, the possibility always exists that this unconscious content will not be consciously integrated, but will instead overpower the ego and cause a psychic regression. Thus, the impulse to move forward causes a step backward, as it were. Instead of becoming more conscious, the person becomes increasingly unconscious. Similarly, when the negative side of society is given a chance to come forward, it can easily happen that things get out of hand and that various regressive and chaotic conditions prevail. From this, it appears that the integrative phase of the psycho-historical growth of the culture of the United States has proceeded very laboriously. At the same time, we must recognize, I think, that this phase, if it has indeed arrived at all, is a very recent origin. Therefore, to view these developments in the perspective of a mere 50 years is a mistake. 
It has taken hundreds, indeed thousands of years for civilization to go through these phases or to pass from one to another. What is needed at the present time is a very philosophical, serene, and detached view of these developments. Instead of allowing ourselves to be thrown into a frenzy of excitement because of the conditions existing around us, we have to see that the social, political, and historical processes occur in time. And since it is a process within time, it takes time. It would be as realistic to imagine that from one year to the next, a new age has burst upon the world in which all things have rapidly changed to a paradisical condition, as it would be to regard the growing pains and confusions of the present era as indicating a frightful decadence and decline of the moral, intellectual, political, and economic character of the culture. Time and timelessness are one of the great pairs of opposites of our psyches. The ego functions in time. The unconscious exists outside of it. Thus, we tend to look out into the world from the watchtower of our archetypes, our own unconscious, and expect that this outer, or outer world will be able to conform in some fashion to the expectations of this interior, deeply unconscious vision. In the unconscious, things can happen without the intervention of time and the imposition of space. The individual who is motivated by the archetypal realities of the unconscious can be heard to exclaim, there is no reason whatsoever why we couldn't make a perfect society right now. Of course, there is no reason why one couldn't make a perfect society in one's head, in one's own mind right now, but there are plenty of good reasons why one cannot create such a condition in the outer world. There is time to contend with, and there are a multitude of circumstances and forces working against one and against each other. A fiat arising out of the mind cannot change the world in the twinkling of an eye. Idealistic persons tend to expect their projections to assume a physical reality in the outer world very rapidly and without difficulty. This, of course, does not happen. Thus, the impatient idealist is always disappointed and dejected. One of the great stumbling blocks in the path of the growth and development of our culture within the context of an integrative phase of development has been our excessive extroversion of consciousness. When speaking of extroversion and introversion among peoples, Jung graphically and forcefully stated that, quote, America is extroverted like hell, <laughs> unquote. Thus, the prevailing attitude of this country makes it understandable that extroverted and consequently simple-minded and reductionist approaches should prevail here when it comes to creative social and economic change. Just think of it. A supposedly religious, idealistic nation which is ever proclaiming its ideals and spiritual commitments at the same time always gives priority to economic and material considerations when it comes to social development. Isn't this quite the same thing that the Marxists do when they look upon history as being determined exclusively by economic forces? Thus, we have reformers, the potential agents of the incipient integrative phase of psychohistory addressing themselves first and foremost to the economic structure of the culture. By attacking and undermining the 19th century models of free market economy, or what was classically called economic liberalism, these reformers start at the very worst place. By attacking the freedom of the marketplace, they have almost succeeded in killing the goose that laid the golden egg of America's economic power and prosperity. The result is confusion the diminishing of economic resources within the individual sphere and the collectivist growth of the welfare state, not a development conductive to the enhancement of consciousness and individuation to be sure. 
What has happened, of course, is that the economic cart was tackled before the psychological horse. The spiritually natural order of priorities was reversed because of the extroverted and implicitly materialistic attitude of consciousness prevailing in the minds of the leaders and thinkers of society. What we have neglected is the psychological fact that useful advances in culture must begin at the level of the mind rather than at the level of the physical conditions. Jung put it very well when he said, quote, every advance in culture is psychologically an extension of consciousness, a coming to consciousness that can take place only through discrimination. Therefore, an advance always begins with individuation, that is to say, with the individual. Consciousness of his isolation cutting a new path through hitherto untrodden territory. We are then currently in America dealing with a pioneering effort of consciousness cutting through previously untrodden territory, which to a large extent must occur at the individual level and primarily psychologically. The thrust of this movement towards growth must be psychological rather than economic or political. In this respect, both the left and the right of the liberal and the conservative positions are in serious need of rethinking their premises and methods. They must abandon their materialism and excessive extroversion and acquire a psychological sense, which they so woefully lack. Changes, if they are to be creative, lasting, and consistent with the psycho-historical needs of the culture, must start in consciousness. And this is a profound point. Um, it seems to me that wherever you look, as Bishop Heller points out, whether you're looking at the right or whether you're looking at the left, the solutions seem to be things like taxes and spending and more money for this and more resources towards that. And indeed, these things are important and perhaps that's just the way things function at the high up level of the state. But what Bishop Heller and what uh, Dr. Jung are telling us is that this, these are not the true ways to create a society of free and liberated individuals, that the solutions are psychological. And, and we need to understand that when Jung is using that word, when Bishop Heller is using that word, when we're using that word here on modern Gnostic, um, we are using it in the sense of, of the psyche, psychological, relating to the psyche or the spirit. Um, the solutions to these problems are spiritual solutions because that is who and what we are. If we put our main focus on material solutions, we are missing the true nature of who and what we are. We will not solve our problems. We will slip into the totalitarianism of the great devouring mother or the totalitarianism of the tyrannical father. And what we are trying to do as modern Gnostics is cut the path of the liberated individual. Um, there's quite a few more pages left in this chapter, and this seems like perhaps a good place to stop for today. This video is maybe a little shorter than most of them, but it's dense and thick material. Um, this idea of dividing cultures and time into these stages of the infancy, of the relation with the mother, of the relation with the father, and then of the relation with the individuated um, ego, 
uh, is an interesting map at which to to look at things and particularly to uh, try to use that map and graph on where we are now. I know um, for years I've been hearing it seems a, a common uh, criticism today to criticize our society as a patriarchal society. Uh, and when I first read this book, it was like a eureka moment for me that I realized that the problem that we're having, I think, is not this problem of patriarchy. It's, it's actually much more a problem of matriarchy. Um, it's a problem of the, the great devouring mother, of the, the rise of the dark and unexplored unconscious. Um, but as Bishop Heller says, and as Jung says, this doesn't mean that we don't need that side um, to be flourishing in full individuals. Uh, but it is interesting to look at that as a map um, to how things are going. And I'd be curious to hear where you see our culture in regards to this map. Um, the other thing that occurs to me while I was reading this is uh, this point where he says, you know, th these things take time and it's uh, seductive. Um, to get caught up in the frenzy is the word that Bishop Heller uses, the frenzy of feeling like, uh, you know, oh my God, we're slipping into this really bad place. And I think there's, there's plenty of things we can look around in the world today and, and point to and say, oh, we're, we're headed in a bad direction. And I, and I think we are headed in a bad direction. And, and I think it's easy to get caught up in the frenzy of that, and particularly in the world of social media and modern media, uh, to just kind of be constantly swimming in that state of anxiety regarding the conditions of the world. Um, lately, I've been taking a break as part of Lent uh, from social media. Um, and it's had a profound effect on my consciousness and on my level of anxiety um, and uh, the way in which I'm caught up in that energy of the changes that are going around. And I, I was talking to my fiance about it today and, and realizing that um, she pointed something out to me the other day. She said, you know, you're a crusader and you like to be on a crusade. And it's very, very true. And in, um, in a lot of ways, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely who I am. I embrace it. I like that. It's something that I engage with. Uh, but what I, I really have had to step back and realize is that if the crusade is to attempt to um, deepen my own Gnostic awakening and understanding and my own experiences of liberty and freedom, and also to attempt to bring that out to the culture, I can't do it if my face is smashed up against the windshield of social media and I'm just screaming as the culture is barreling down, you know, the freeway of uh, the freeway to uh, dystopia. Um, it's important to kind of get back from it a little bit and realize that I can't change the whole culture. You can't change the whole culture. There's very few levers politically that I can pull, and we should pull those levers when we can. Uh, but what we absolutely can do and absolutely have the power to do is this psychological work of individuation, this, this work of waking up to who and what we really are, having these, these moments of experiencing the, the true nature of ourselves as liberated, free spiritual beings, and then attempting to engage in the world 
from that place and to engage with our fellow spirit souls in that place. Um, it's one of the reasons I, I love this t-shirt. I got this t-shirt uh, from one of my friends in the Hare Krishna movement, which is the first place I learned as a very, very young man that, you know what, you're not your body. You're not your body. You are spirit soul. You're eternal. You partake of the divine nature. And it's as we wake up to that and as we move into that and as we live more and more from that space that we save and redeem and make whole the world and can potentially turn around um, the direction of our culture and the and and break free of the tyranny that is rapidly solidifying around us. So I hope you found this video and podcast useful. I hope you're enjoying uh, the reading of this book. I hope you go and find this book and buy it and study it for yourself and uh, investigate all of the teachings of Bishop Stefan Heller. Uh, there's tons of his lectures on YouTube. Uh, his, his website, gnosis.org, has tons of articles and teachings and scriptures from him. Um, I cannot recommend the work of Stefan Heller enough if you are interested in becoming a free and liberated individual. Thank you, as always, for watching or listening. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you are doing that. And I really encourage you to reach out either in the comments reach out to me on Facebook. Like I said, I'm staying off of social media, but because of the podcast and the YouTube channel, I check my messages. Um, so if you, if you have something that you would like to talk about, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, continue to watch uh, the stuff that's coming out. And please, if you find it useful, share it with your friends and family. Uh, and I hope that you have a wonderful week and just continue to seek the mysteries and experience more and more of the true nature of who and what you really are. As always, thank you for listening to Modern Gnostic. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you are listening or watching. And I really encourage you to share this far and wide with friends and family, with other spiritual seekers that you may know. Let them know about the show. Let them know about the podcast. And feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find my personal Facebook page or the page for the podcast on Facebook. Send me a message. I love communicating and meeting with new people. And if you're in the Asheville area or the Western North Carolina area and are interested in experiencing some of the spiritual practices of modern Gnosticism, reach out to me. Our local church, the Gnostic Temple, is beginning to meet again as COVID restrictions are lifted in our area. So if you're interested in that, please be sure to reach out and come and join us and experience this path of modern Gnosticism. Until next time, I hope you all have a wonderful week, a wonderful life, and continue to seek the mysteries. Thank you.